You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And of course, before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp, of course, is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. And actually, we're sending out our monthly newsletter for August this week. So if you're not on our list, please go to revisionpath.com, sign up there. Uh, MailChimp also integrates you know, with a lot of different services, I think over 800 different services, anywhere from accounting to CRM, all kind of stuff. So I'm sure you can find a way to use it in your business. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. If you need a new domain for your next project, you should check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. You can also choose from dozens of new top-level domains such as .coffee, say you have a coffee blog and you want to call it, you know, I love .coffee or something. You can get that at Hover, which is pretty cool. Uh, they also have this new feature that's called Hover Connect. So if you have a website that's on Shopify or Tumblr or Squarespace, you can easily connect and disconnect your Hover domain to either of those services automatically for free. So go ahead, grab yourself a domain today, use the promo code DOGDAYS, and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2.00. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday. Of course, today is Monday. And they've got really great bundle promotions every month. If you see something that you like while you're there, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. It's a good deal. Now, before I go on to our Patreon update for this week, I want to welcome our new listeners from Product Hunt. Uh, Revision Path was featured on Product Hunt this past Friday. And because of that, the site had its highest traffic day since Revision Path started two and a half years ago, which is amazing. I cannot believe it. Uh, so go to ProductHunt.com, search for Revision Path, and if you like the show, leave a comment, show your support, let the Product Hunt community know that this is a strong community of listeners here. I'm pretty sure that would be pretty cool to see. And speaking of showing support, we got a new iTunes review. This is from KMT901, and it's titled, Thank You for Highlighting the Work of Black Techies. And the review goes as follows. I really appreciate the podcast because it highlights those of us who, despite the struggles we go through, still persevere and succeed in tech. Thank you so much, KMT901, for that really awesome review. Uh, Make sure you check us out on iTunes, leave a rating and a review. It really helps more people find out about the show. Now, here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still at 13 patrons. Uh, We're now at a combined total of $111 a month. So that puts us 11% of the way to our first goal, which is to bring back, you know, original articles and pieces and stuff like that for the Revision Path blog. Really can't do that without your support. But of course, I want to give a tremendously huge thanks to all of you that have already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, 
head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. This week, I talked to Teresa Stewart. Uh, Teresa is an interaction designer for Gravity Tank in Chicago, Illinois. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So I am Teresa Stewart. I'm an interaction designer in Chicago, and I work at a place called Gravity Tank, which is an innovation consultancy. So I spend a lot of my days working at a really high level, helping businesses and organizations with new product, service, and technology offerings, sort of figuring out what to do with that. And interaction in that sense here is very broad, anything from doing wireframes to looking at high-level sort of organizational structures of like how a digital application might work. Let's unpack that that kind of title of interaction designer, because I know within the past few years, there have been a lot of different sort of designer titles that have popped up, experience designer, interaction designer, et cetera. I guess within the concept of what you're talking about with Gravity Tank, it can mean a bunch of different things. But generally, what would you say an interaction designer does? So it's interesting you mentioned those titles. We were just joking the other day how like product designer is now the new title for what we do. Yeah. Basically, here I would say interaction design is definitely, it's a bit more digital focused. And it's just how, it's like HCI. So how do people interface with this system in a way that makes sense and is intuitive and to me, in the broader sense, it feels like interaction design is really anything. So I worked at product firms in the past where it's why this physical button goes this place or the screen is here. Like, how is somebody actually physically interacting with this and how can we make it, I mean, I guess as easy or seamless as possible. That's how I would describe interaction design. And it's pretty broad, but I always feel like not as broad as experience design. Because to me, everyone's an experience designer. Like, everything is an experience but interaction is very specifically like, okay, if somebody's coming up to use this system, now we're at the point where we can think a little bit more about how they're going to use it and maybe to an extent sort of the context around it. What sort of tools would an interaction designer use? I guess because I'm thinking with a graphic designer, they use Photoshop or Illustrator or, or something like that. What kind of tools do you normally use for what you do? So for me, it's Pretty much like a graphic designer, Photoshop. I use a lot of Illustrator for just like wireframing or doing sitemaps and things of that nature. I also do front-end development as an interaction designer. So actually lately, especially the past year, I've spent a lot of my time like coding. But other tools that are kind of, that are really exciting, I think from this perspective is a program called Sketch, which is like Photoshop, but it's really optimized for doing web design because straight from the program, you can like copy and paste code, which is really great. And just diving into a lot of the prototyping web applications that happen, like Envision is a tool that I use. And then one I recently started using was Marvel, which is really great for just like throwing up screens, making some hot links and getting people to sort of go through them and see how they're interacting in either real time or, I mean, the longer you do this, you realize it's like harder to understand feedback on static screens for something interactive, just like throwing it up and making people experience. It gives you a lot richer feedback. I try to build and do that as often as possible. Yeah, I use Envision too. Like I use it mostly with mock-ups if I'm, if I'm talking with clients so they can interact, like you said, with them. So it's not just the static thing. Yeah. It's interesting though that a lot of our tools seem to be moving towards these, these cloud-based software packages as opposed to like a standalone installable like we would know Photoshop and Illustrator to be. I think Sketch is like that too, though. Yeah. But like you mentioned Envision, you mentioned Marvel, things like that. Do you see that kind of being the future of where a lot of these tools go as design really becomes focused more around technology? It's a hard question to answer. 
I think, yes, from an accessible standpoint, like it starts to make sense. I guess I question it from like, like I've used some of those web-based designing tools, like a uh, balsamic, I think is still web-based mm-hmm. and it's just a performance factor and a security factor. So if you're thinking about in the client space, wanting to keep things confidential, having all that sort of exist on the cloud starts to get a little bit scary because places I've worked in the past, that's the reason we didn't use balsamic is because like these cloud-based web applications sometimes can run a little slower or just from the perspective of like, okay, this is, this file isn't anywhere like on my machine. It's here. Like, is that okay? Is it secure? But I think that's how things will move once they figure out if they can get it to sort of be as fast as running on a machine. Walk me through like a typical day of what you do at Gravity Tank. If if that exists, if that (laughs) exists. (laughs) It exists in moments of time. So like now I'm what they call on the beach where I'm not resourced to a specific project. So I have my hands in a whole bunch of other like internal projects and a lot of it's coding. So right now a typical day for me is really, you know, come in, do all the morning stuff, have coffee. So you're not a monster and then really sit down and start making your building. So either like today I started straight in code cause I had mocked up some stuff in Marvel, got some feedback from some people yesterday and I just started going in to build to see if I could get it done. And that's really sort of a typical day. You just sort of come in and make. Typical is hard. I've had projects where a normal day is like I go to the shop and like sand some stuff down as a designer. And then like we'll go back and do digital things. So Also, there's like a physical component of stuff too? Sometimes like if I'm on a project. So at Gravity Tank, we have, you know, operations, strategy, research, and then design. And design's broken up into industrial design, culinary design communication design and interaction design. And on any given project, sort of every capability is represented. And so I've been on projects that have been a bit more industrial design focused, or we've been making more physical prototypes. And I've like gone up into the shopper prototyping area where I actually built stuff with my hands as opposed to on the web. I talked about like the interaction from that perspective sometimes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It makes it like exciting, mixing it up, getting out of your computer and actually building stuff for a change. It's kind of Mm -hmm. So I guess kind of speaking on that a little bit now, you went to the University of Cincinnati and you studied digital design. Can you tell me what that experience was like? So it was crazy. So the program actually is no longer there. I was the part of the last graduating class. And so digital design was everything digital. So from a skill set perspective, I learned like basic graphic design, like typography, interaction design, motion design and 3D modeling. And you learn all of that your first few years. And then your last two years, you really craft sort of what you want your specialty to be. So for me, I wanted it to be interaction design. So there's like a co-op program where I alternated three months of school with three months of work. And I just started crafting my co-op experiences to be more around interaction design and all of my studio projects around interaction design. So it was a bit of a choose your own adventure. So like that's what I did for interaction. I have friends that did motion design. So they worked at motion studios or film studios and focus all their later studio projects around making motion pieces. And you say they don't offer that, that program anymore. Did they sort of fold it into regular arts programs? How did that, how did that work? Yeah, they folded it into the graphic design program. So now um, it's a program called visual communication design and it has tracks. So you can be a motion designer an interaction designer or a graphic designer, but now the programs are one. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So you kind of had this hybrid approach. You're working. You're also in school. I guess that really sort of helped out to give you a focus on where to go after you graduate because you've got that real world and that academic experience kind of 
not going in tandem, but they're certainly occurring kind of in the same period of time. Yeah, and they like and they flow into each other. So I think the co-op thing is great for learning about what you want to do. I think the greatest asset it provided me is me learning things I didn't want to do. Like I thought I wanted to be a web designer for the longest time. And then I worked in web design. And while it was fine, I realized like this is definitely not the path for me. And I felt really glad that I discovered it, you know, my second year in school, as opposed to like finishing a five year program and committing (laughs) to being in this job for Uh however long. So what's your process when it comes like to tackling new projects? Like you said right now, you're on the beach, which I love that term (laughs) or kind of not necessarily being on a specific project, but kind of working on a bunch of other things. But say you're you're working on a new project. What is, I guess, your process for getting started? So typical process is just ramping up with uh, research. So whether it's going with the research team out into the field or doing things on my own, I'm trying to think like the last project I was on, we were building an MVP for basically like portfolio management software or something along those lines. And so it's just getting smart about what does that space even look like? Like if we're sort of building a thing that looks like portfolio management, where does that software exist today? What's going well about it? What's failing? Who's best in class? And then taking all that sort of, I think, distilling it down to what's working, and what's not working and taking that into the principle of sort of the problem we're trying to solve being asked by our client. And then from there, it's sort of starting to make things as soon as possible. So if we look at what they're trying to do based on the secondary research And our primary research, which is like going into users' homes and talking to them, just start coming up with sort of taking a stab at how things could be. (laughs) So it's like, Mm -hmm. "Hmm, if this isn't working currently and we've heard this in research, you know, we might be talking to somebody tomorrow. Could I mock something up and say, well, what if it worked specifically like this and start working usually at a low level? So straight into sketching and then from sketching to probably wireframing and then taking that wireframe and building in HTML. That's a normal process. We did experiment a little bit with uh, going straight from sketching to coding, which was very interesting, like getting to something working as quick as possible so people can experience it. So I've done that on a few projects, too. I've still been trying to sort of wrap my head around which of those processes work best for me. Sometimes I can go right into working and then sometimes I just need to have that kind of intermediary period like you mentioned there. I've been experimenting with this on quite a few projects. It's it definitely depends on your team. In the skill set, so I've been working on that process with uh, one of the developers at my office that I'm paired with frequently, and we started working on it together on an internal project. And it works when you sort of have a, a bit more of a clear goal in mind and had work in a way that you understand things like code are flexible. Mm-hmm. But I think it definitely, when you get thrown uh, curveballs, makes it a little bit harder to adjust as opposed to just like changing a comp. You could get a curveball that's like, oh, no, I have to change the whole structure of this thing that I built. So, yeah, I haven't quite found the right way either. <laughs> but now, like the project I'm working on, our internal project, depending on the questions I'm trying to answer, I can just go straight from, okay, this is a sketch that I did. I can go ahead and just mock it up and then send it out because we already have something pretty well established and defined. So was Gravity Tank your first design job after you graduated? No, it's actually my third. So my first job, I worked for a small but mighty design firm uh, in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. It was a great place. I learned a lot from my boss there. But unfortunately, it uh, closed after a few months of just like things were shifting and it just sort of felt like the right time. It'd been around for about 15 years. So I worked there for a little while. And then my second job, I worked at Insight Product Development here in Chicago, which is a medical device design firm. Because hmm. healthcare is a sort of a 
interest of mine. And so I wanted to see what it would be like to sort of design interfaces for healthcare devices or software. So speaking of like healthcare devices, what do you think about, I guess, the current crop of wearables that really sort of access and give data about physical activities like Jawbone and Up and the Fuel Band and even now things like the Apple Watch? Uh, This is where my skepticism comes in. (laughs) Okay. Because the big thing about wearables is I think they're nice. Uh, I mean, you basically have a pedometer. And I myself have been really hesitant about buying one just from what we talked about before, that data perspective, like where it all lives, where it's going, and how is it actually helping me be healthy? So it's counted my steps, but like, is that tangible for me as a person? Great, I walked 10,000 steps today. Like, what does that mean to me from a health perspective, as opposed to an activity perspective, which is what a lot of them are now. So I'm curious to see, like, I feel like health has become such this like nebulous term. And (laughs) I agree. So... So the thing with wearables is like, how is it helping me be healthy? Besides tracking my activity, like there's more to health than that. And it's also just one aspect of health, right? It's just physical activity. But what about mental health? That definitely deals in with. So it's not like I hesitate to say like a holistic view of someone's health. And then Mm -hmm. with that information, like what do we do with it? Like I'm all about I would love it if insurance companies used not, I shouldn't say use that data, but just like if I'm being proactive and activity is now going to be a measure of health, like how can we start to use it to make insurance sort of better than what it is now? I got you. So using that data in more contextual ways than just like numbers on a screen. I like that part that you said about mental health, because I think that is is really interesting because one of the and this is this may be a little bit of a stretch, but. When I think about a wearable that, and this is going to be silly, when I think about a wearable that communicates something, I guess, that might reflect mental health, I think of mood rings, yeah. you know, where it's like, oh, you must be angry because the stone is like blue or something like that. I don't know if that's the same thing. I might be, that might be a stretch there. But I mean, I think if you got something like an Apple Watch or, or wristband or something like that, that can track your heartbeat and your pulse and things like that. How can you also use it to track like your mental and emotional state throughout the day or something like that. You know, I think that would be kind of the next step of where this could go, but I'd like to see some, I mean, I feel like the technology is available now to make that happen. Yeah. I think it's just, there aren't, so wearables all work on biometrics and I think there hasn't, I could be wrong. I could be misspeaking, but it seems like there isn't quite a pinpoint of biometrics that are a fair indicator of somebody's mental state. If that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. So, I guess, yeah, I would be really fascinated if wearables could start to do that and even help me predict. So if mental health is a lot of like a cycle, like help me mm-hmm. predict that it's knowing that this activities that I've started to do over the past week or two, I'm about to go into a cycle of depression, like surface up those activities that are going to help me not be depressed. So I don't like hit this down point or if I'm about to hit a down point, make sure it's not as low as it could be or things uh-huh. of that nature. You might be onto something there. You might want to tuck that idea away. That's no, no, seriously. Like as I, as I really think about like the future of where wearables are going to go and how we use them and how we interact with them, especially because technology is so ubiquitous now. I mean, that stuff is important because that helps us be better people. I mean, like you said, health is a very wide ranging thing. It's not just physical health. Something like that really helps us just become better people for our friends, for our families, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just being more mindful of ourselves. Like that's what a lot of it 
a lot of it is. So quantified self is great, but that those numbers don't mean anything to me. But where data gets exciting for me is predicting, like starting to predict things and surfacing them to me sort of in a non-annoying way, but helping me be mindful about what's coming up. So mm-hmm. if we blow this idea out even further, so now we've got mental health, we've got biometrics, and then maybe it's integrated with my calendar and knows that I'm about to have a crazy stressful week in two weeks. Like maybe it starts helping me manage those feelings, emotions, that health, because it's like, all right, just going to get crazy in two weeks. Like we know it's going to get crazy. Here's how we're going to help you manage so it doesn't get too crazy for you. Right. When did you first kind of get started with design? I mean, I'm saying that in a broader sense because it sounds like you also do a lot of work with kind of data and development stuff as well. But when did you first kind of get that interest into this line of work particularly? Uh, So that's interesting. I would say when I was about 14 because I wanted to be an astronomer and somebody told me that wasn't a viable career path. And (laughs) I had a friend that told me about graphic design. And I thought that that could be kind of interesting because prior to that, I mean, confession times, I'm like a huge nerd and I have been for a long time. Like I've been developing websites probably since I was about 13 or 14. My mom like sent me and my brother to an after school class. And so like 14 year old me was like online designing Zengas and live journals. So I guess I've always had an inclination, but never thought that I could make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 14, I sort of learned about the program at Cincinnati and spent a lot of time then getting, I think, more interested in design. So I did, and for graphic design, actually, I designed for my school paper, still did the web design on the side just for myself. And yeah, that's how I got started. And getting into interaction design specifically, I guess if I were to have a biography, my biggest thing is I actually wanted to go into graphic design and I got rejected from graphic design at the University of Cincinnati. So it's not a good feeling when your acceptance letter starts out with the words, unfortunately, because like, are you serious? Are you telling me that I got like rejected (laughs) from the school in my state? But I ended up getting put into my second choice major, which was digital design. And I think that was probably the best thing to ever happen, because that's when I started getting interested in sort of how people interact with the things that we're making. What are you most excited about at the moment? Are there any kind of new projects or technology that you're working with? I don't know what this means. But I am really interested in design thinking and this idea of organizations. Everybody's been talking about how like the nine to five isn't working anymore and how just careers themselves are changing. And I'm really interested in what design can do to help organizations shift sort of with the times. I don't know what that means yet, but I'm like really excited about it. (laughs) You mean like like designing the workday or, or what do you mean? Uh, I don't quite know. I've actually just been like reading organizational design, which is apparently a specialty of like human resources about how you actually structure your organization to facilitate better working practices. And I think there's something really interesting to that from the actual designer's mind. So when I think about interaction, to me also broadens up into interactions between people and sort of the sociology and philosophy behind what that means. And like, could you apply principles to interaction design that we've been traditionally using for web and interfaces and start applying it to how people work with each other and what that means? If there's one company I think that has a really interesting organizational design, it's probably Automatic. Automatic is the company that that owns WordPress and Jetpack and Akismen and whatnot. And their employees are worldwide 
there's no like set automatic office. Well, actually, I think there's a building in San Francisco, but like people don't generally report to work there. It's kind of like a, a touchstone, I guess, like when they have meetups or something, maybe they'll go there. But for the most part, it's a very distributed company. I think there are about 200 to 300 employees or something worldwide. And everyone kind of chats and communicates through back channels, like through Skype and through IRC and things like that. And so it's interesting because you have this sort of almost flat hierarchy because there's that lack of like physical space, Yeah, if that makes sense. And everyone's job titles, they're not the conventional job titles. You'll see things like happiness engineer. I think the CEO is called like the chief barbecue taster or something <laughs> like that. So you have like these kind of weird sort of, of uh, levels of, I guess, organization and how that works out. And they do get together from time to time. The different small teams get together. And then there's one like big group get together for everyone in the company. And it seems to work out pretty well. Everyone I know that works for them or has worked for them has said nothing but great things about how that sort of distributed structure really helps them be more productive as employees, because I guess it sort of strips out kind of the other stressors that we might associate with the workplace, you know, the building, the politics, the coworkers, I guess the physical proximity to coworkers yeah. or something like that. I don't know. I think that's interesting. So there's like the organizational aspect and then the tech person in me is like, okay, so then what do we build to facilitate that? Like, mm -hmm. is it products and services? Is it like if communication is happening through these back channels, is that great? Because right now, I mean, minus the introduction of Slack, like living in email and very centralized things, like what does an organization look like that that's pretty decentralized and what do they use and how does it work? And I don't know. It's just been yeah, something I I'm thinking so. about a lot. <laughs> I think Slack is helping with, I mean, I don't know if they're, if automatic uses Slack. I know at one point they were using a combination of Skype and IRC, but there are, you know, increasingly more companies that are using Slack and that's sort of helping them kind of eschew that one part of the workplace that we think is pretty central, which is email communication and putting it in something that is more of like a real time searchable kind of stream, which is, is interesting. Yeah. Now, I saw on Gravity Tank that you wrote a post about a recent trip that you took overseas. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So back in March, I went with AIGA and uh, Onward Travel Co. And they did what they call Spring Breakivik, where it was me and a group of designers from AIGA. And we went to Iceland for Design March, which is the week-long Icelandic design festival over there. So we did sort of the first half of the week was a lot more cultural immersion, doing sightseeing, getting to know each other. And the last half of the week was going to the festival, which is amazing because design is really fluid there, which I guess we can talk a little bit about later. But the festival itself was set in a manner where there's just like, you get like this massive book and there's just people and gallery openings just all over the city. Um, in Reykjavik, I mean, it's a small city. You can walk from one into the other in like 15 minutes, but it's like a really great way to actually experience a city through its design because you're sort of navigating the neighborhoods and figuring out what streets to find the gallery. So having everything sort of spread out sort of gives mm -hmm. you a real sense of what it's like to be there as opposed to having, I mean, we had one day where we heard talks at the Harpa, which is their concert hall and big event space or event hall, but it just felt like a richer experience doing that as opposed to going to a conference where you're just like in one building for like five days and just getting to, talk to local designers. Like I met a guy there who designed like 300 logos in a year. And it was a personal project. He saw when it was his friend's birthday on Facebook 
from concept to final in 15 minutes, you just like design them a logo. And it just became like an exercise in doing that. Was that your first trip to Iceland? Yes, that was my first trip to Iceland and to Europe, actually. I have never been to Europe. So what was it like? Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> it is spare no detail yeah, it's, it's just surreal so i got really infatuated with iceland actually after um the volcano exploded and there mm-hmm. were like all these pictures of like the aurora borealis and this like volcano at night and i was like okay i have to visit this place and just the landscape itself is it's just surreal and um, we went in the winter time it was still winter so there was snow on the ground but that mm-hmm. didn't stop us from exploring. And then the last day, all the snow had melted. And it was like a completely different, it was like being in a completely different country. Like the volcanic rocks everywhere. And just seeing the landscape essentially change from like white to black. I don't know. Yeah, it was just surreal. I can't even describe it. <laughs> and I mean, you were there for a week. So I mean, I guess you kind of had at least a little taste of what the the culture was like there as well as the design scene, right? Yeah, a lot of the culture and just like, so the thing with design being a fluid term is it's just so integrated in their society. Like everyone is essentially a designer, but not a designer, they're a musician or a published author, right? They're all very creative. Like everyone has something going on. But I guess when I think about what changed for me thinking about design is there was a guy who was working at our hostel, uh, Bjorn, he was like an art student. And so he had an exhibition going on during design week and he was going to be at the gallery. So he talked us through his pieces and if you were just to look at it, you would be like, Oh, this is, you know, a fine arts piece. It's a guy making, pottery out of wood. That's interesting. But then he started talking about it because they're really big about process over there, like how the work gets done and the problem it's solving. And his pottery was actually made out of wood. And then the cups and the caps were made out of the pulp of the wood, finely pressed together. And he's like, I know this is nonsensical because it would melt. But he was thinking about in Iceland, they use wood, a lot of wood, but it's not a naturally occurring resource or it's something that can run out very quickly. So his thinking was how can we start to make things out of wood where we use absolutely every part of it so there's no waste because it's such a finite resource for us. Yeah, and it was like interesting that that is what was driving him as opposed to, I don't know, just assuming like, oh, he's just making cool pottery. But it's really like, okay, we have this resource issue, so this is just an expression of that problem. And it's like one way that I'm thinking about it, but it has sort of this core need behind it that's driving it. And that's sort of what has been driving... It seems to drive everyone's work that we sort of talk to. Part of what was in that post that I thought was really interesting is this thread that was connecting a bunch of different concepts, which had to deal with uh, play and its importance in design work. Can you talk a bit about that? So that was the theme of the festival and the talks this year was this idea of play. And I think what I really latched onto is play isn't just like doing whatever you want and it's a lot of fun, but it sort of gets at the core of, I think this is like a bad term now, but like creative problem solving. Like you give yourself bounds, it's structured. And so within that structure, starting to work around figuring out the things you can do, like that is what's playful. And when you think about as a child playing a game, you do, you come up with rules and structures and you come through a process, you explain it to people to sort of bring them along for the ride. So it's sort of that natural process of how we play can actually be attributed to how we do work. And it sort of just makes things way more interesting or gets you what it felt like hearing the speakers. And I guess what I took from it is like a lot more passion, like it becomes fun, even though you've got boundaries and you have a client problem to solve. What makes it playful is, well, how am I going to do this? And I could do this in a variety of ways. So to make sure you open yourself up to that process and just have a little bit of fun, because through fun, you can sort of discover 
I think places you never would have gotten to had you tried to be too rigid or structured or been like, no, I can only approach doing this from like working in illustrator and things like that, which I think now is way more appropriate. Have you seen the Google materials design video? I just watched it today. Oh yeah. I did see that where I saw they had like a, even they had rigs that they set up with little pieces of paper and to show how the, the interactions, how they look, the shadows and everything like that. Yeah. Like that, that's play. And like, it came out with this amazing result and I'm sorry, I just watched it today. So it's like, so inspiring, (laughs) (laughs) but even just little things like that. Like I try to start doing more interactions through paper. So if I'm showing a website and I show how it moves in slides, like I'll cut out the pieces of paper, I'll show the mock-up and I'll actually pull it through a frame instead of looking at it on the computer because it's a little easier to share having it out. And it gives people some context like, okay, let's not evaluate this whole thing like a static composition. You're only going to see a little at a time. So let's evaluate it from this perspective, pull the paper up. Great. Now let's evaluate it from this perspective because that's all somebody's seeing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if play is something that a lot of designers really I mean I think you know we do play because we have to be creative when it comes time for for concepts and things like that but there was something else in the post and I'm trying to remember where you were I think it was near the end it had to do with play and failure yeah I mean play results in things failing like again if you think about as a kid if you set a game and it doesn't go so well and it fails like you sort of learn from it but it seems a bit more like a low stakes way of learning if you're also having fun in the process because i think and having fun is i think the wrong term to use but it's playing it's, realizing something's not working and being able to pivot quicker than had you done a more structured approach or a less sort of thoughtful approach because play to me mm-hmm. also seems very thoughtful and intentional sort of stepping outside yourself to do something that you enjoy and then I feel like reflecting on that process. And if something fails, it's like, oh, this didn't work. And my mind is open. So now I can see that this didn't work, but I can take the pieces that did work from the failure and start to port it over into something else. Yeah. You mentioned that something about having the confidence to fail, which I, I really agree with that. Kind of having that confidence to fail is important as a designer. To know that not necessarily everything you do is going to be your best work, but each of those steps as you're failing, so to speak, you're getting closer to what will will work. You're getting closer to that. Yeah, I mean, you have to know that because if you go in thinking everything is going to be perfect, like you're going to be sorely disappointed when you become a designer. And people have a, that mantra of like fail early and often. And it's great because failure, I... I'm not saying I love failure, but you learn so much more when things don't go well than you do when they are well, because a failure forces you to be reflective as well. So have the confidence to do something that's going to force you to reflect when it doesn't go well and be smart enough to know that you need to reflect on it. And don't just say, well, I failed because everything sucked. But no, take a look at like break it down. Why did this not go well? Because guarantee that there are parts of it that are working. And so take those parts that are working and port them forward and then learn why something didn't go well and take those learnings and keep moving. Who has offered you some of the most useful, I guess, advice? It can be about work, about life, about design. Who offered you that useful advice and what was that piece of advice? Oh, man. The big value of sort of experimentation, I learned a lot from my last boss, Jacob, who it was like a small team. I think the company half of the people were like, I don't know what you guys do over there. And he was just all about like, sure, try it. Let's try it. If it doesn't work, then we'll do something else. I think bringing that spirit. So it's, I guess, a little less advice, but bringing that spirit to the work definitely changed my perspective on not everything having to be right. 
uh, that confidence to yeah, fail again. Confidence to fail. I also had a really great professor, Dennis Puhala, who just gave me a lot of great life advice and navigating career paths and it just being, you know, it's okay if it's open. Like you don't have to necessarily know everything that you're going to go and accomplish and do as a designer, but just be confident again in your abilities that, you know, you'll figure it out one day. <laughs> Those are the two that are sticking now, but there's like, honestly, everyone I've ever met has given me just amazing advice. <laughs> so with all of, I guess, this realm of, of different experiences and design tactics and things that you've done, do you feel that anyone can be a designer? Because I know that design is such an encompassing thing. Everything in our world passes through some lens or level of design. But oftentimes you'll hear from people, like I hear it from clients all the time. They're like, I'm not a designer, but I'm not a designer. But I feel like, or do you feel like I should say, because I'm asking you, does everyone kind of have some kind of design acumen or concept? I think so. I think people have a design concept. I think what sets apart to designers is that they've learned to be attuned to it. So I learned how to be a designer. Like I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had like taken one art class because I was like, I guess I'm going to design school. So I guess I should take art. But like my school structure <laughs> was definitely heavily weighted. I love science. That's why I was like, want to be an astronomer, want to be science. It was like science and English. And that was it. And design school helped me learn to be more attuned to the design sensibility that I had. Everybody has an idea. They may not be able to articulate it. But yeah, I think everyone is a designer, can learn to be a designer. I mean, I'm proof that you can learn to be a designer. <laughs> Do you think that there are specific, I guess, ways or methods that people can, I guess, tap into this more? Ooh, because me, I had formal education and I'm trying to think what are the processes that I learned in education? I mean, I think a lot of it is resources of people that you already respect that know design. So mm -hmm. actually into the realm of good advice, the, his name is Gordon. I'm going to butcher his last name, Salco, I think. He started the graphic design program at the University of Cincinnati. And I had to interview him for a project. And his thing was everybody can learn to be a designer. What I took away from a lot of it is the process of learning to have good taste by copying. So not like straight up ripping off somebody's work and selling it as your own, but like going through the process of like, okay, I really like that design. If I start to go through and maybe just for myself, try to recreate it, that helps me get more attuned about what's working about this. And as I go through that, then I start to have my own and original ideas and my own take on it. But even just the process of being very regimented of like, I like this thing, I want to try and replicate it for myself, starts to maybe get you there. So you mentioned this guy, Gordon, and I know you mentioned an old boss named Jacob. Who have been some of your other mentors that have helped you out? This is going to be embarrassing if she listens to it, but the most amazing woman, Anne. And Anne has been one of my more recent and starting at Gravity Tank mentors about just advice. She's actually a strategist here. And I just think her perceptions on, I think, being in the workplace and even just about, I don't know, just everything. Like this question of where things go, what it means for me to be a designer and to sort of navigate my path. She's been great for that. I met Ginja Birkenbuehl a few months back and just getting to talk to her. She's, I think even in our brief conversations, it's just like been great advice. It's hard to say to me. I feel like I learn something from everyone that I work with, whether mm -hmm. it's at my job or informally or even on the side of clients it feels a bit like everyone's sort of a mentor. What keeps you motivated? I guess I 
it might be kind of cheesy or corny, but I have this core belief about design sort of being able to change the world. And I have that internal fire that just like keeps me wanting to create and move and work. And it doesn't have to be solving all the world's problems. But when I think about it, you're solving someone's problem when you do something, even if it's like a client trying to figure out like, how are we going to market this? Or how are we going to offer this? Like all those little wins, that's changing someone's world. Like it might not be massive to solving world hunger, but you're helping that person sleep a little easier at night because they've got like an action plan on things to do. And that is why I love design. And that's what keeps me going, even on the hard days where I'm like, I just don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'm tired of working (laughs) long hours. I just want to do something easy and be on the beach. But it's like, no, like I'm helping somebody sleep a little easier at night by solving a problem that they have. If you weren't a designer, what would you be doing? Oh my gosh. I feel like I would probably be like a doctor, I think might be the path that I would have traveled down. (laughs) I love science and I love anatomy and I love biology and I like wanted to be a surgeon for the longest time. And it's the whole thing with designing, changing the world. It's at the core. I just want to help people. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so a doctor was like a very tangible and immediate way. And just, I just find all of those things fascinating. Every sector of healthcare, whether it's immediate, like helping patients to studying things like epidemiology and how disease travels, just like all of that I'm super fascinated by. Well, I think that as wearables and things like, you know, we sort of spoke about that earlier, as they start becoming more and more commonplace and they start really grabbing and using a lot of the data about ourselves, I feel like those topics are definitely going to come up. Yeah. So it's funny, I, I interviewed someone, God, this was maybe about two years ago for the show. Her name is Stesha Doku, and she is a designer and a physician. And so we had spoke a bit, and this was a while ago, we spoke a bit about kind of what the intersection is between design and medicine and how designers can help out with medicine just in terms of like better design charts and things of that nature. Because as she put it, from what I recall, kind of that whole sphere of health and medicine doesn't really have a design lens on it towards usability and making things easier if that makes sense yeah and that was so at my previous job that was a lot of what we looked at and solved and stop me if i go too off track that's true and i think the fascinating aspect of it is because when you think about things like healthcare and usability there's so much regulation in place that I think getting to a usable point that maps to regulation just makes people's heads spin, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it would be really great to actually take a look at that and what can't be done. You know, we've got HIPAA. There are other things pushing on this design that definitely need to be considered. So where is the intersection of having somebody who's a specialty in understanding all of that, being able to keep that in the back of their mind and translate it into an actually usable thing? That's going to pass regulation, not have to go through so many loopholes and then be designed to death. I don't know. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, Teresa, where can our audience find out more about you? Um, So you can find me um, on the Twitters, LinkedIn, the Behance portfolio. And that's pretty much it from now. I'm actually, um, I guess if I say this now, I'll have to commit to it. But I'm taking a month long trip to study at the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design. And I'm hoping to start a more active medium Hmm. account and doing some writing there. When will you be in Copenhagen? So I'll be there. Um, I leave July 2nd and I'll be there for the entire month of July. Okay. So when this interview comes out, actually, you'll be in Copenhagen. So that'll be pretty interesting. Yeah, it'll be nice. Then if anybody's like, 
what did you say? I'll be like, I'm so far away now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Teresa, thank you so much for taking time out of your day for speaking with me. I, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad that we were able to talk about not just, you know, what you do at Gravity Tank, but also just kind of your approach to design as a whole and the things that you've learned throughout your travels and such. So thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. It was great. And again, yeah, thanks for reaching out. It's fun. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Teresa Stewart. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Teresa and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have really great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your purchase by using the promo code DOGDAYS at checkout. And of course, lastly, there is Creative Market, the marketplace that sells these beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, and if you see something else you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Tape For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did with KMT901 at the top of the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon. Become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Music.